Good morning, and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. You know, part of what got me thinking that we, I needed to start Jew in the City many years back was negative headlines about Orthodox Jews. I grew up with a lot of negative ideas, um, and some of them were due to hearing about bad experiences people that I knew had with Orthodox Jews, um, and some of it were due to um, negative characters or caricatures in TV and movies. But a decent amount of it was due to the headlines that, you know, kind of the worst of the community were making, and that was really my understanding about them. So as we continue to run Jew in the City and grow Jew in the City, we're still very cognizant of negative headlines, and um, they're very troubling and very upsetting. But there are also positive headlines. There's also positive updates that are in the news. And, um, of course, those we're delighted by, we like to publicize, we like to talk about. Um, and there was a pretty cool um, news item that I saw in my news feed recently um, about a basketball player you may have heard of named Amari Studemeyer, who is now actually having a conversion. Um, and I don't really know anything about basketball, but I know lots of people do like basketball. And I think anytime um, a beloved public figure um, does something that's positively Jewish um, or you know shows Israel in a good way, um, that's always a win for the Jewish people. And I started to inquire about um, maybe how to get in touch with Amari or like what the story behind it was. And I got connected to um, a, a friend and a teacher and a mentor to um, Amari who we're going to be talking to today. His name is Rabbi Harry Rosenberg. Um, he's a social entrepreneur who's building a technology startup incubation in uh, ecological village in the Galil. He's the co-founder in Lost Tribe Beverage and Theological Research Institute and co-founder of the iTribe, the social networking network mapping out of the Lost Tribes of Israel. Rabbi Harry, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a big honor. I'm a very big fan. Thank you. Um, so, from your bio, it sounds like there is a lot of interest in Lost Tribes. So, can you tell our listeners a little bit about where and how you grew up and um, and then, yeah, how you got into what you do today. Okay, definitely, sure. Um, I was I was raised, born in Queens, New York. So I guess that's why I'm fitting to be in your New York Jews category. Uh, I was raised in a family that was not religious. Uh, we were in America already, half my family before the war, so we were kind of just a regular American Jews. I was in public school until about bar mitzvah age. And then my parents switched me to yeshiva. But I wasn't really into the whole thing until much later on in my life. But I went from in yeshiva from bar mitzvah age all the way throughout high school and then to Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, to learn Torah for a year after high school. And that's kind of where my story starts, where I start to get interested in things a little, a little bit more. And <clears throat> it's funny because you said you notice the Lost Tribes theme. My family, they were not religious. They come from the Vilna Gon from uh, Europe, Rabbi Leal Kramer. And oh. now my whole entire family became, yeah, it's, it's, I'll tell you why it's connected. Uh, my whole entire family out of nowhere became religious. So my parents, my sisters, was the whole full swoop. And I learned later on in life, after getting involved with the whole Lost Tribes thing, that the Bill Magone, uh, his students had penned the letters to the Lost Tribes of Israel. So this was a topic already from ancient times that I realized only afterwards this was something genetic in my blood that I had gotten into. This is kind of where my story starts. Hmm. 
So, okay, so um, you go off to Israel and um, you get more, I guess at that point, meaning you were, you were sent to yeshiva for the year in between high school and college. So, like, were you already somewhat observant at that point or did something, like, what sparked you to go from being uh, a Jewish kid from a not religious home, being sent to a Jewish school to actually um, wanting to, to do this um, for yourself? So it's a good question. Because I think with most people, they go to Israel for that gap year, and then they find kind of find God or find religion and get religious. But it was kind of the opposite for me. It was definitely a good year. I enjoyed it, but it was not filled with any real Torah learning or any growth. It was just kind of, you know, all my friends were in another country and were hanging out and having a good time. But I guess what ends up happening is while you're there, there's still rabbis who are just trying to get you. And so they're flipping some good information and wisdom in your ears, whether you like it or not, at different points throughout the year. So I finished my year. You know, I heard what the rabbis had to say. It didn't really mean too much to me. And I was back in New York. Um, so this would have been called my Shana Bet year, the year students go back for the second year. And I'm hanging out. You know, kids are in NYU. I was in Queens College. Everyone's got apartments. It was the first time, you know, we're free in New York City, really, from the yeshiva world. And it was just a lot of, you know, there's partying, there's, there's who knows what going on, and I was kind of getting involved in that for quite some time, you know, for a few weeks and then a few months, and then I had this moment where it kind of all hit me, and the exact thoughts in my head were basically, you know, I'm filled in a room with the greatest people, the nicest people, but there's this big breakdown going on where there's this lack of truth, where people have a hard time communicating on something that's real or something that's true, and so I kind of had to just, you know, step aside from it all for a little bit. And this was all happening in, like, at a moment in, in New York City. And I kind of just took a walk, and I left where I was, and I started walking around thinking. And it kind of hit me, and I was saying, you know, that we're missing something in our life. We're missing something crucial. And, and then at that moment, when I had that mental shift to acknowledge, like, the, that dissolving of the ego, that there's something missing here, I'm not full then I guess everything that my rabbi said to me throughout that whole year all of a sudden just hit me and, like, it made sense to me out of nowhere where I was like, wait a minute, we're missing the Torah. We're missing the words of our ancestors. If I need to get to, like, where I want to be in life, I have to look back and see what they said about things. And that, that's where it clicked to me. And so all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I had this passion to return to Israel, to return to Torah, I guess because I hit a big low, uh, a spiritual low. I was doing great physically. Um, hit a spiritual low, and then part of that whole vision was saying, why aren't we, you know, getting land in Israel? So I kind of had this, this calling to go to Israel, learn Torah, and get land. These were the, the voices that were in my head for a period of time, which those voices ended up leading to the story we're going to discuss right now, of what ended up happening. Okay, so you just get this uh, idea, you got to return to the land, and you got to get more land and return to the ways of your forefathers. So... What is this? How does this actualize itself? What, and how how does getting land relate to lost tribes? Sort of take us through, um, I guess, the next piece of your journey. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's all very connected. Um, so I picked up like you know a week or two later. Next thing I know, I'm back in Israel for my Shana Bet year. You know, I started growing my beard. I haven't shaved my beard since, and I just went right into the world of Torah learning. I spent about four or five years just studying Torah, but with the underlying desire to eventually figure out how to get land in Israel and settle in Israel. And while I was learning Torah in Yeshiva, I had read a sefer by Rav Textel called Eim Habanim Smecha, and it's all about settling the land of Israel in the future and getting land back. And he gave a piece of advice, 
that he said, if you follow this piece of advice, it's guaranteed to basically get land and settle Israel and have hatzlacha, have success. His advice was basically humans themselves always like complaining to God. You know, God, where's my blessing? How could you didn't bless me? And he was saying basically, humans themselves, we don't receive blessings on ourselves. We receive blessings on our handiwork, on things that we create with our hands. So he was saying there's a tremendous amount of desire basically from Hashem, from the heavens, in the, in the universe today to bring the children of Israel back to the land of Israel. We just simply don't know how to tap into that and bring that down. He was saying if you make this vessel, this clee, that you could create, and if it's geared towards settling the land of Israel, and one of the conditions was it's with a group of friends who share unconditional love with each other. He says whatever that vessel is, guaranteed to have success in settling the land of Israel. So for us, it was an easy next step. I gathered together some of my best friends in New York City. We're in an apartment talking. Uh, and we said, you know, basically, we all had this common idea that we would love all to get back to the land of Israel and get land. We just need to think of a vessel. So the first thought that came up within a few seconds was a friend of mine, uh, Ari. He said, let's start a brewery on a plot of land in Israel. If we make a brewery, we'll have people come. It'll make money. It'll be a vessel. We'll, we'll get land. It'll all work out. And that's and it's kind of, you know, we're all... A little back to the, the partying time. I'm saying that maybe you take a piece of your life that you left, but you can bring, like, the beer along to the next stage. For sure. Jews are all about elevating things. So it's like the alcohol is not evil. It's just that it could make you evil. So the things could always be elevated and, and used for the good. So mm -hmm. for sure. So we're saying, let's, let's, let's start a brewery. We're all on the same page. You know, we're all very excited. Uh, we we all got tickets back to Israel. You know, we got cars, and we started driving around the Galil and the Golan, knocking on every kibbutz, going to every moshav, saying, "Hey, are you guys abandoned? Do you need help?" Because you know, there's a lot of dying down communities in the periphery in Israel. We made packets and presentations, and went to all the organizations, and we were essentially just saying, "Hey, we're a bunch of young guys. We want to bring capital to Israel, youth to Israel. We want to bring projects here. Who's going to help us?" And we noticed there was just a ton of bureaucracy, and the way it is in Israel is because we're a nation of people with good ideas, that coming with a good idea wasn't really enough. So we were kind of still just being passed around from place to place, person to person, and it was a difficult journey finding land. But while all this was happening, we heard about these two tribes that returned to Israel from the quote-unquote lost tribes of Israel, who came back to Israel with ancient beer recipes. Hmm. This was uh, the Ethiopians from Ethiopia who came back with this uh, honey brew, and the Bnei Menashe who came back from India who came back with this rice beer. Just to hmm. give uh, a little history before I go forward, what was that? You had a question? No, no, I was. That was just very interesting that they had ancient um, beer recipes. What What does that even mean? Like, meaning how, how old is beer, and why? Do we know like why they kept recipes, or why this was. This was did every community have beer? Like. We know more about why this happened? Sure. We we see that even in the Talmud, in the times of the Talmud, Rav Papa was a famous brewmaster. He made date wine, and, and it called him uh, a sudna, and they said, why is it called a sudna, a brewer? The Gemara says, because it's a sudna, it's a beautiful secret that makes you wealthy, brewing beer. That was in the Talmud. So I think that um, brewing was part of Israel's history from ancient times, but if you look at these lost tribes, they're coming from regions in, what was that? No, no, that was just me going, hmm, sorry, continue. Oh, okay, good. So, you know, they're coming from these regions around the world where they have plants and recipes and medicines and all these things that were relevant in Africa and relevant in, in India, 
But now in Israel, they don't have their plants, and they don't have what they were using back then. They have to learn a whole new culture and a whole new land. So part of this was us saying, hey, they're coming back with valuable things. Let's kind of step in here and help preserve it, because this may, these may be valuable things that they shouldn't leave behind. And so first thing we did, we stopped the first uh, Ethiopian we saw on the street. And obviously, we there are brothers. There was a husband and a shalom. And we stopped the first uh, B'nai Menashe from India in the street, and we asked them, well, if we can learn their beer recipes, do they have a tribal leader, et cetera. Next thing you know, we're sitting with the tribal leader of individual tribes on uh, separate occasions. They're introducing us to their brewmasters, you know, which are traditionally the elderly old ladies in, in the tribe who know the beer recipes. They're sitting down with us and teaching us uh, the recipes of their beer. Mm. And, and we learned them. Uh, before just I go forward, I just want to give a very quick background. Basically, when I say the lost tribes of Israel, these people coming back, the kingdom of Israel in the time of the Temple of Solomon it was made up of 12 united tribes. And after the time of King Solomon, after his death, the nation eventually split into two due to high taxes in the Temple of Jerusalem, which was in the lands of Judea. And the northern part of the people of Israel formed what's called the Ten Tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel. And the southern part was Judea, the Judean kingdom, and we, and we had the temples, uh, the first temple and second temple in the Judean kingdom. And there was a split. And the ten tribes in the north, Jews, Judeans in the south. And the Assyrians ended up coming in, in the year 722 before the Common Era, exiled the northern ten tribes. <clears throat> so when we say uh, the lost tribes of Israel, we're really saying they were lost from Judea, from the Jews, 722 BCE and disappeared, but we still stayed in the land of Israel. We went into Babylon later, had the story of Purim, came back, but when we came back, we were just Judeans. We were missing a bulk of our nation. And the prophecies say that in the future that the two, you know, the northern kingdom, the Judeans will reunite, which is why we say in the Shemona Esther and the Amida every morning, we say, Tzuri Yisrael, Kumaba Ezrat Yisrael, Ustaytinumecha, Yehuda, the Yisrael. We speak every single day about these two entities, the entity of Yehuda and the entity of Yisrael, that in the future they come back together and unite. So now, today, around the whole world, you're having individuals who say they're from the lost tribes of Israel. But we'll get more into that towards the end of this phone call. Uh, I just wanted to be a little more specific when I'm speaking about the lost tribes of Israel, that this context of are they, when people always say, are they Jews, are they not Jews, that will just put a little clarity here. Uh, so back to the story, we have these recipes, and we're still driving around Israel, and we said to each other, we said, you know what? This is a ton of bureaucracy here in Israel. To get land made, take a little longer than we thought. Let's go back to New York. We're really good at New York. We speak the language. We know how to flow there. Let's launch the beer company in New York, and we'll create some value there, and eventually we'll, we'll move it to Israel when we get a farm. And we were all in agreement. We went back to New York, and we started putting up little batches in our bathtubs, you know, just some examples and bigger and bigger batches. Until eventually, through this miraculous story, we sponsored uh, the alcohol at Yahoo event one night, and the caterer there loved our beers, and he had a Pesach program, and the Ethiopian one was kosher for Pesach, kosher for Passover, it was honey-based, and we ended up uh, doing the beer for his Passover uh, event, and next thing you know, we found an investor there, and one thing led to the next, and you know, the next thing you know, we're basically putting up large commercial batches of our beers, upstate New York, with a license to sell and distribute beer in New York. Uh, this is where we found ourselves, and I think it was, a, <laughs> it was an interesting few years of doing that. Um, and you can imagine this guy with a beard, uh, with a keep on, you know, going to bars at like 12, 1 in, at night trying to sell cakes to people. 
And uh, thank God we actually had a lot of success. People took very kindly to us. I think New Yorkers love local and love seeing a hard hustling person. So when they're dealing with a co-founder versus uh, an employee at a distribution company, they're just going to treat you like a human and really be uh, helpful and kind to get you moving in life. So we had a few-year period of uh, successfully selling our beers in New York. Um, as I mentioned to you, we were we were doing uh, beer pong tournaments with in- intercompanies. So we were once sponsored uh, the alcohol at a Tumblr, which is a social media company event, and we were there hanging out with them. And we said to them, "Hey, let's uh, let's have this idea of beer pong tournaments. Invite other companies to come to the Tumblr offices, and we'll sponsor the beer, and we'll have these uh, tournaments." So the next thing you know, we're playing beer pong with Twitter and Tumblr and Google Glass and Vimeo and College Humor and networking. It was like a whole, it was a whole wild journey of, uh, of just spreading the word of the Lost Tribes, I guess, and, ha- and making, you know, sales and, and, uh, and partying in a holy way. Very While cool. all this was happening, just, uh, yeah, it's, uh, well, what ended up happening later on is, it's not enough time in this call, this is like a five-hour story, we ended up through a miraculous series of events using the value of the beer company to end up getting a large plot of land in Israel. So that did happen, which was kind of like the fruition of that blessing from the book that we were referring to, And while this was all happening, back to kind of what you were saying with the basketball player, we're in New York City, and we see in about 2010 or 11, there's an article that this uh, basketball player comes to the Knicks, Amari Stoudemire, and everyone in New York was so excited because New York Knicks needed some, someone like him to help uh, bring back some energy. And all of a sudden, we saw articles that he's going to Israel, talking about Jewish roots, uh, and all these things. And at the time, we were very into the Lost Tribes of Israel because of this beer company. Um, and in fact, we started getting emails from people all around the world saying that they're from the Lost Tribes of Israel. Because at that time in history, if you Googled the word Lost Tribes, our beer company was coming up first. So we started getting messages from Afghanistan, from Nigeria, from Japan, from India, on a daily basis of people saying they're from the Lost Tribes of Israel. That's what really caused us to say, hey, this is more than just a business. There's actually something going on here. You know, we spent some time reading all the books and watching the documentaries and really understanding who's who and what's what and how to, how to make sense of it all. And <clears throat> when we saw Amari Sotomayor, we were like, this guy is saying he has Jewish roots, and he's like, he could be the poster boy for this. He's the, he's like the coolest Lost Tribes guy out there today. That was for us, like, we really just wanted to hang out with him and discuss this phenomenon. I'm going to share uh, a really interesting note right now that I think is going to be very well known in the future, but today it's still something that most people don't know. The largest tribe in Africa today that self-identifies as being from the tribes of Israel is not the Ethiopians, it's the Igbo tribe, I-G-B-O, tribe of Nigeria. They number about 40 million people. Today there's, let's say, 50 synagogues, practicing Orthodox synagogues in the, in the, within this tribe. Uh, wow. They're doing eight-day circumcision. They're, yeah, it's a, it's a phenomenon. If you, if you go into YouTube or Google and see the Nigerian Igbo Jews, you'll just be blown away by what's going on. And we're dealing with even the, the leader of the Igbos, you know, he wears a talit, and they, wear, they have flags of Israel everywhere, and this is a massive nation of a very interesting group of people. But what makes this more interesting is if you, because America kept really good records of the slave trade, of where everyone came from, if you look, you see 15 to 20 percent of the slaves brought from Africa to America came specifically from this one tribe, not even from that specific region, but from that specific tribe. 
Correct. Yeah. So now, if you look at them, it's mind-blowing, because now you're looking at America, and like there's subtle things that you'll start to see, like, like an example, like Amari Stoudemire. I'll give another reference. I don't know if you are familiar with this. There's a famous rapper named Kendrick Lamar, and, and Kendrick Lamar is one of his most recent raps, and his new album, he says basically, don't call me black no more, that's not my name anymore, I'm a Hebrew Israelite. And that's one of his raps. So you see, you see this start to happen amongst a lot of high-profile celebrities, basketball players, rappers, where they're starting to say, I'm a Hebrew Israelite. And it's actually one of the largest basketball movements of the African-American community is returning to their, quote-unquote, Israelite Jewish roots. Yeah. So when, when we have a situation like Amari Stoudemire, it's not like a one-off individual who may have had a Jewish person marrying family. He literally had a Messorah in his family, a legend in his family that's from the ships that they came from, that they were Judeans, that they came from the tribes of Israel of Judah that fled into Africa, as Josephus says, millions of Jews fled into Africa at the time of destruction to avoid slavery. So they, they self-identified from being from this group. So I said, this is, this is just tremendous. We really need to connect with him. And, and discuss this. And, you know, that was just an idea. It's really hard to get in touch with celebrities and high-profile people. And, you know, we weren't, we're not like, chasing anyone around. It was just an idea or a thought. Right. And my partner, David, he calls me one afternoon, and he says, wow, you won't believe what just happened. So what just happened? He says, I was just kind of like thinking whatever, and I just sent out a tweet to Amari Stoudemire, something about biblical prophecy, and he responded right away. And I said, wow, I get out of town. And he said, yeah. And, and then we started DMing each other, like direct messaging each other um, on Twitter about, like, Bible prophecy and Torah and stuff. And then Amari gave me his phone number. And I said, you know, at that time we thought this was like a joke, you know. Um, but we recognized his voice from ESPN and from TV. So we call him, and he says, hey, guys, you know, basically um, I'm down in Texas now at Akeem Olajuwon's house, the basketball player, where he was. He says, I'm training. He says, why don't you guys come down here and we'll study some Torah and see where it goes from there. So, so we were just like, no problem, let's do it. So uh, me, David, and another one of our best friends, uh, that day we got tickets to Texas, and we had a family member there we were able to stay by. And we went to his Amari's hotel room, and we were kind of waiting for him to come back from practice. We're like, is this real? Is it not real? Is this a scam? Is you know, a camera? Is we're going to get punked? And then, you know, he, com- he comes in the room, and with his guys, his two friends, his uh, spiritual, uh, tra- his physical trainer, spiritual people that he was learning with, comes in the room, we're sitting at the table, and they're like, all right, what do you, what do you have? Like, what, what do you got for us, like, Torah-wise? So we started a conversation about the crossover between quantum physics and Kabbalah and spirituality and the merging of science and, and, and biblical narrative, and that's one of my specialties. And we started talking about it. We had a really captivating conversation and basically, at the end of the whole thing, he said, you know, <clears throat> I'm, I'm looking for people to study Torah with. I want to grow in Torah. And from that moment on, we just be, we became really good friends and Torah partners where, you know, when he was on the Knicks, he, you know, unfortunately had a few injuries. And, and even if he wasn't injured, after the, the games or whatever it was, when his whole team was going out to party and stuff, he was calling me and saying, let's learn some Torah. Let's, let's build, you know. And oh. so I was... You know, I, I wasn't public about it. I wasn't making social media posts. I wasn't promoting it. I was just saying, hey, this is a really cool situation. I love Torah. This guy loves Torah. This is, this is a great relationship. And so now this was, that was already about, you know, early 2012. Now we're at seven years later where we've been studying Torah this whole time. Now he's here in Jerusalem going through an Orthodox conversion track. He's in a yeshiva and learning every single day. Serious amounts of Torah.
Amazing. Um, wow. Um, and do you know, like I'm saying, when he, this is, I think, a more of a recent um, decision, right? Because for a while, he was just kind of referring to himself as a lost tribe. But at a certain point, was there a point that something changed in him that he decided he wanted to make it official as opposed to sort of referring back to um, the family story? Yeah, I do, I do think there was a, a point, because now you have a situation where, let's say, these African-Americans who came from these ships who were really from the ancient Israelites, let's say, um, you know, I mean, we did find the Kohen gene in the Lemba tribe in Africa, so there's a whole complete tribe in Africa, 10% of them have the Kohen gene, so there's no mystery that the Israelites exiled in Africa, it's just, you know, crazy for us to now see thousands of years later that someone has this memory. So let's say you're from this community, and all of a sudden you say, hey, I'm, 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 I'm these people, I'm from the people of Israel, so then you say to them, oh, well, that's so cool, but you got to convert. It's like, what do you mean convert? I, this is who I am. How do I convert to what I am already? You know? Um, so that's the first thought that will happen to anyone who's usually from the Lost Tribes of Israel. There's a big block there where they see, why do I need to convert? Um, right. And then you know, it, took, it took many years of really understanding what, what the Torah really wants of us and how we understand the Torah. The Torah is not just some document you can inherit and self-interpret. There's a transmission to how we understand the Torah, and it's been passed down from generation to generation. So once you're disconnected from that, as a human, even if you're from the people of Israel, you have to actively do something to reunite with the Torah. It has to be an act. So let's say there's like a term for someone who may be from the, like an Israelite father but a non-Jewish mother, that would be called Zerius or El, the seed of Israel. So it's like, yeah, there's no question you may be the seed of Israel, but to actually join and rejoin the people of Israel, to become part of it, you have to do it through the way of the Torah. And so once that became clear to him, you know, that that the community that he was from, the African-American Israelite community, as much as they may be from the people of Israel, there's still a level that has to happen where they reaccept the Torah. Um, mm-hmm. So I think he saw this as an opportunity for him to to do that, to say, now let me take this Torah, my inheritance, let me learn it, and then I can share it with my people, with my community, who are kind of confused right now. I mean, I think, honestly, that, in, in my mind, really defines the difference between, at least for me, you know, taking on the life of an Orthodox Jew versus the proud Jew that I was before. Sort of like saying, okay, certain things are requirements, maybe I don't feel them as much, but if this is what the law is saying, then... It's not only about my feelings. I also have to I have to also bend myself in some ways to conform to um, this system, and I, I think that's a real sign of, of commitment um, to, to make it a way of life. So that's super inspiring, and I, I hope that there will be more that we can hear. Because I mean, really, what um, what a leader um, he you know can be now for the Jewish people, and to be the leader of the leader, or uh, I guess a mentor of um, someone you know who somebody look up to is really uh, so incredible. Um, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today, Rabbi Harry, and um, I wish you continued Hatzlacha. I mean, that's really nice, and uh, and the story's kind of still in, its, in the middle of it somewhere, so I'm sure somewhere down the line I'll, I'll let you know how it ends. We, we can't wait. Um, thank you so much for joining us, and thank <laughs> you so much for listening. You can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.